Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You'll find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections about the current public health crisis, visit Sojo.net slash coronavirus. We've had some great episodes over the last couple of months about all this, and I can't wait to add another excellent guest to this roster. Today I'm speaking with Kate Bowler about living with uncertainty in a society that likes to avoid it. <laughs> living with uncertainty in a time that wants quick and easy fixes. Well, Kate Bowler is a New York Times bestselling author and podcast host and a historian of Christianity at Duke Divinity School. And uh, her best-selling book, the first one, was called Blessed, A History of the Prosperity Gospel in 2013. I might say one of the best things ever written about the prosperity gospel, in my view. Um, a book that's a prosperity gospel of theology full of many of our, I would say, American heresies. And then she was diagnosed with stage four cancer in 2015 with a young toddler. And the book came after that was called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved. So she, I think, brings some life experience to us right now going through in our lives a lot of uncertainty and learning how to live with that. Um, so Kate, thank you for joining us here at Soul of a Nation today. Oh, I'm so grateful to be with you. I really am. I've been looking forward to meeting you for a long time. So this, this is a beautiful treat for me. Well, here we are meeting in this, uh, in this, uh, <laughs> this new kind of, of way, world. right? Yeah. But I've been aware of your, uh, insights for some time now and been very grateful for them. Let me just start with... How's your spirit, Kate, in these days? How's your spirit? Mm. Oh, what a thoughtful question. Right now, I'm feeling a bit low, to be honest. I um, you know, I think there was this the moment at the beginning of of orienting to a new season and and sort of trying to I'm pretty good at setting horizons because I I've gotten used to living between scans. And so I was like, oh, I I know how to do this. I know how to do this. But lately we've I've just um I've just lost uh, more people that I know than I, I care to. So this week just feels uh, heavier than usual. Mm -hmm. I have a little uh, notepad next to my computer here on the desk of those people, my own personal prayer vigil list, and it grows and grows and grows. Uh, my, my sister and family went through this and, and they've gotten through it, but you know, the kind of, tweet beeps would happen all day long when I'm even doing podcasts, something new had happened. Um, so I, I started my career as an anti-war organizer a long time ago. And during that time, I thought a lot about American culture and how it had contributed to the a senseless war um, based on a lot of lies that really killed a lot of people. Um, how 
In a recent New York Times piece, you wrote something that I was struck by, how that sort of those sense of those falsehoods continues to contribute now to the mismanagement of COVID-19. You said everyone else in the world will suffer too, but I don't think they will suffer nearly the same cultural disillusionment because they don't have that account of exceptionalism. Yeah. Unpack that a bit. What do you mean by uh, that? Well, um, I mean, the story of American individualism, this this founding myth of bootstrapping and righteous self-starters, <laughs> which we've now morphed into a story about side gigs and hustle and hashtag good vibes only. <laughs> we, uh, we've had a story told that is as much a story about um, people individuals, we should do better, as it is a story about the nation, that um, that there that there is this deep American uh, cultural script that tells us that there is supposed to be more than enoughness here, that, that we're supposed to live our lives with the assumption that we have all of the resources and the social structures and the provisions that will be required to live your best life now. And uh, we know, of course, I hope by now that that is that is false, that uh, we don't have the, the health structures we need, we don't have the economy we need, and we certainly don't have the communal structures we need. Um, and that structurally, we're not actually in a position to be the bootstrappers we wish we were. <laughs> and, then, and then we feel terrible when everything comes apart and we blame ourselves. And so I'm, I'm just so concerned that the stories we tell ourselves are not serving us well, especially now. Mm-hmm. So your story um, really helps to uh, show us some of that because, you know, I've often thought that in this country, there's a history of religion leading to certainty or religion leading to reflection. In my view, it's the latter, but often it's felt to be the former in this country. And there was a certain kind of, there's a certainty to what's been called the prosperity gospel. Uh, and all of a sudden, your life was interrupted by a whole lot of uncertainty uh, with uh, the cancer and a small child. And you were flourishing in your career. Everybody was talking about how, how <laughs> yeah, amazing you well. were. You were doing I was well. doing well for a minute there. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was almost a winner before I was suddenly a loser. <laughs> And that, that was a big, that was a big and sudden fall. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not even American, I'm Canadian. And yet somehow I've, I've always wondered if I just, I felt so at home here because of its famous love of efficiency and, and bigger and better. And I just, you know, I was doing that thing where I'd worked really hard uh, in graduate school. I'd gotten a great job. I um, I married a good person and like finally had the kid I'd always wanted. And I just, as, as sophisticated as I think I am, I think I'd gotten confused there for a minute and thought that maybe I deserved the good things in my life. And um, and so when it all came crashing down, I I really had to ask myself like, I'm sorry. Did you think that you you were like the exception to the rule that bad things happen to everybody and and like what stories were you telling yourself where you you imagined that you were always pressing toward 
a, a better future. And I, I'm sure it's just part of the hubris of like being alive. We breathe and we assume we'll always keep breathing. <laughs> but I, um, I was horrified and I, I think I was horrified because of my own, um, little version of the prosperity gospel. And I think I was also horrified because almost immediately the cultural scripts that were being used to explain me like, Oh, that I had to, um, what was the lesson I was going to learn? And did I deserve this? I realized that all the the frameworks around me had made it almost impossible for me to come to the right conclusion, which is that I had been lucky. And then suddenly I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So, as a scholar, an American uh, scholar of American religious history, um, you were you learned about this prosperity gospel and you wrote so eloquently about it. And then now I wonder, and from you, what how does the prosperity gospel is it how it's at such odds with living yeah. in our present uncertainty <laughs> yeah. in this pandemic? Oh yeah, well. Man, and so like as a, a scholarly definition, right, of the prosperity gospel is we is we look for our we look for health and wealth and happiness. We just try to figure out like who who's winning in our culture and and if so, it's likely they imagine that it's their faith and their positive words and positive actions that have have led them to be rewarded by God. And and I mean one of the weirder parts of a moment like this is um is suddenly we realize that we are not actually constituted primarily by our thoughts and our attitudes. Like someone with a great attitude is still stuck at home in the pandemic. Someone with an amazing spirit and faith has still probably lost their dad and couldn't hold his hand. Like there will be no distinction between us because of our ability to be this super Christian. But, um, the problem is, is that the prosperity gospel actually does really well in a time like this because it promises people like a return to certainty, just like you were saying, like certainty is such a drug. And it just says, look, let me give you a couple tools and I swear to you, you can get out of this. And like this being the human condition, <laughs> like for which I'm guessing based on my experience, there is no cure. And so it's hard. It does really well in poor times and it does really well in wealthy times. And there's a surrealness to that. Why is American culture at large so resistant to uncertainty? Oh, man. I feel like we could talk about that forever. Yes. Um, well, and you and I share a, a love of... Um, <laughs> Well, okay. So we love our certainties, right? Evangelicalism got hooked on the idea that they could prove their faith. There was always a Bible verse, always a reason, always a proof text, always a Dan the Bible man, you know, ready, ready to wage war against confusion. And that's one kind of certainty. The other is it's a country of plenty. And so it it always felt like if we fell, we'd never fall all the way down. And so our faith and our lives were never really going to be disproven, not in this country. So I, I do think it's been, it's been hard because it's, um, and the other thing I'll just say is this is a faith that got hooked on metrics. Like I study mega churches. And so the, the amount of times I've heard Christians explain why their church is better than others, because it's, you know, a guy named Jeff and a 20,000 person multi-site model. And like the numbers are always supposed to do the work. And 
we we always just imagine that our faith is going to prove itself and all of that has been a kind of endless reinforcement that that we will always know that we are right we will always know that we are good and then all of a sudden when you're surrounded by all this disconfirming evidence you're like wait are we not are, are aren't christians supposed to have more yeah you this all of us now could tell stories about our dinner tables, our full of conversations about with our kids about uncertainty. Um, we don't know what's going to happen or when, uh, and and it's it's such a difficult time to to live with uncertainty and, and live with suffering rather than trying to explain it away or or fix it or deny it or say it's going to be over and different by this time. Yeah. But I think we're scared, though, honestly, Jim, that if it doesn't mean something in the way that we need it to, that all this suffering is for nothing. And like, you know, any any woman who's been in labor knows that they are just like counting the seconds till the pain is over. But they're 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 doing it knowing there's a baby at the end. Right. Like every pain gets transformed into some great and beautiful gain. And like that's just how we're wired. And that's that's how our hope is directed. Like, OK, no problem. I'll deal with this horrible thing. But just tell me it's going to get better. But better is a word that no one can promise anyone right now. And so we need to find different faithful language that is is able to say, Oh, buddy, your life can still be good and true and beautiful, but good and true and beautiful isn't always better. Hmm. You wrote in the New Statesman that you you shared how people had a hard time relating to you on an emotional level after your cancer diagnosis. Um, what what are the parallels now from the experience to a time like like this? Oh, I guess maybe I hear it in like um. You know, if somebody, if you hear that somebody's, um, you know, been infected or if they're in the hospital or if you read an article about, you know, somebody who passes away and the circumstances seem strange. And then you hear all the first questions like, well, you know, was, was there any underlying conditions? Well, how old were they? You know, like they're, they're trying to run the math, which is natural, but there's a cruelty to it, which says, um, why them and not me? in order to, to get back to that safe feeling. And I, I didn't know, I mean, other people have experiences and bodies and uh, the, in which people always question uh, whether they get what they deserve. I had not had that experience in a sustained way before. And so the second I got sick, I was stuck with like, yeah, but was it in your family or maybe it was something you were eating. And so we're, we're, we're just like rushing to find the reason so that we can, return to that lovely feeling of safety, I think. It's like we we want to 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 find the answers when really maybe what's being put on us are the questions. Um, COVID has laid bare so much, everything. Um, that three times African-Americans and Hispanics are getting sick and dying of COVID than white people. Well, why didn't we know this before in all of our systems, healthcare, economy, education? And yet now it's been revealed. This is a fact, a, a disease, as you say, which doesn't, doesn't uh, hit different people biologically, ethnically, but people are in a position, in a vulnerable place in the conditions of their lives uh, so much more if they're Black or Hispanic and they're getting sicker and dying. 
And, and so, there's this like fault line between the exposed and the sheltered. And this is exactly. just like revealing mm-hmm. it in a way that we were, we were just much quicker to explain away, I think before. Mm-hmm. So this could lead us to a deeper reflection and it's going to change us for sure in different ways. We're not going to be the same after all this. So how does, how does the, how does the reflection take us to another place, which we could go forward in instead of, how to fix it, how to re- reopen, how to do all that quickly and, and get this thing over. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, one of the, one of the most painful ways is to, is to give up on the narrative of like back to before, you know, all I have to do is I, and I, I mean, this is something I went through right away is I was like, okay, okay. Uh, how do I get back? How do I get back to the person I was before the, like the health, the certainty, the, you know, going to sleep without worrying, like, how do I get back? And like, I think you're exactly right. The question is, how do we get through? And then who are we at the end? And transformation is not fun as far as I can tell. <laughs> so, but I think it is, it is the challenge being required. Who are we at the end is a great, 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 great question. Say more about that. Who, who, how can this help us look at and wonder and maybe even change who are we at the end of this oh man what i love it i would love it if people were less less willing to use their faith as a substitute for certainty i mean we love the gospels part where jesus does a lot of hard things for us and we're we're less thrilled with the martyrdom of the early <laughs> of the early church because <laughs> i think we were just hoping there was a little asterisk there i think our our desire to instrumentalize our faith, to to hope that we're always on a path to self-improvement. I think one of the big bads of this, like one of the great enemies of um, being changed is, is what therapeutic culture has done to us. I really think we've gotten used to describing Christianity in terms of emotional uh, benefits and a sort of clarity of mind. We sort of return to like epistemological and psychological rationales which is which is bananas it really is <laughs> like come for the jesus stay for the self-esteem and you know it's it's made a lot of pastors into fake therapists so i wish we would just stop trying to uh use our faith as like an end run around <laughs> like like how it feels to be a human. Like, yes, everyone should go see a therapist. Totally. But like, there's a reason we go to church. It's because we're fragile. We're dumb half the time and we need each other's wisdom and guidance. And we mostly go for the Holy Spirit, which is which is just God showing up among us and trying to make us different. So none of that is going to be therapeutic in the ways that we imagine. But gosh, I hope that we can live without that language. Hmm. You know, around the world, particularly a lot of uh, the body of Christ, as we say, at places like Duke Div School, is uh, the the most diverse human community on the planet. And all around the world, um, Christians are used to things like suffering and uncertainty and even risk. They don't expect that not to be a part of their lives. And somehow in this country, we think we either are or should be exempt from yes. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. But not me, God. <laughs> I have plans. 
I've, I've, I've been hooked on the, I mean, okay, seriously, Jim, the other day I realized that almost all the new Christian books were all coming out in the New York Times category for self-help slash miscellaneous. So the fact that all of our wisdom is, is put in the same category because we put it there as self-help manuals and recipe books, I think shows us that we are hooked on formulas that we think will, will, will get us out of where we're at. And like, if we could just <laughs> take a minute to imagine that we are much like everyone else, I think it would do us a load of good. You, you've often championed knowing our own bandwidth and being comfortable with our limits. Uh, and uh, my boys came in last night and said, Dad, next Sunday's Mother's Day. Uh, here's our plan. You know, So Mother's Day is approaching. And uh, what is a reminder that you'd like to give to moms or any parent, really, uh, trying to raise kids through all this uncertainty right now? And how can we be reminded of our own limits? Oh, yeah. Well, I only say that stuff because I'm terrible at it. That is a full disclosure. <laughs> I'm like the absolute worst at uh, naming my own boundaries before I fall all the way down. But um, one of the kind of moral confusions I had when I got sick was that if bad things were happening in the world, that it was somehow my job to protect my kid from it. And that was like the number one thing about being a mom was putting my kid in a hamster bubble and just like pushing him around. And it took me a while of realizing that there was going to be no escape, you know, for him or for anyone from terrible things, but making, I don't know, just having a minute to realize um, that as moms, it's not our job to be either superhuman or to, or to insulate our children. It's our job to like, be so fully human that when they see us go through this stuff with courage and the willingness to take naps, that that they learn a little bit more about how to manage the pain and inevitable suffering that's ahead of them. And it's not fun, but that is surely like <laughs> they get to see us walk through it instead of just imagining that we can all skip it. So I'm 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 hoping we all can be a little less superhuman and a little bit more willingness, willing to, um, to accept presence and breaks. You know, it's like, we always want to say, uh, to our kids or someone who's gotten ill or in difficult circumstances, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And it depends what we mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. 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 That's right. And like, I want to skip it. I do. I want to skip it. And I, every day I wish that there was nothing to protect my son from, but it does make me feel a lot less disoriented to look at the world clearly and say like, all right, that's the day ahead of us. And in the meantime, would you like to count these jelly beans with me and make up a silly song? Like, cutting back and forth between reality being like the terrible thing out there and reality also being the wonder and ridiculousness of a six-year-old's mind. Like that, that does give me a little sanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, this, uh, this notion of invincibility, um, I had a, my own bout with uh, some of the listeners know with prostate cancer about five years ago. And um, I remember 
the doctor calling as I was running between appointments. Well, we have your, we, we got the results of the biopsy. Would you like to come in? And I said, no, just, just tell me because I had a meeting. Uh, well, people like to come in sometimes and talk this through. I said, no, I'll, I'll be fine. Well, you have prostate cancer. Oh, my first response was, are you sure you have the right biopsy? Because I, I don't think I do, you know. And, and I wrestle, particularly, I think men struggle with this at all different. We would never say, never say uh, that we're invincible because that's the wrong thing to say. You would never say that or think you think that. But your schedule and what you wake up thinking you can and should change every day uh, requires someone to be invincible. And we're not. And then it takes something for me. It, it really was... I woke up to that with this cancer. I've talked to lots of men in particular, men who are very, you know, high, high level uh, performers who think they should change and can change the world. And something like this hits them. And the first thing you realize is you're vulnerable. You're not invincible. You're human. Somehow you really are human. And, and you, you schedule yourself and think and act like you're invincible because you'd have to be to do all the things you think you should <laughs> yes, do. Yes, that's so good. Right? Yeah, so, totally. <laughs> but you really show that in your writing, and which is eloquent, by the way, that you're writing and speaking that that, that invincibility is, is an illusion. And we as a culture have that too. And the prosperity gospel has that too. Yes, totally. But Jim, I love that argument. I think, I think if you're like, what, so like, what's your theological anthropology, right? Like, what's your view of yourself as a person? Like, don't ask, don't ask for your beliefs. Just look at your calendar. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. And if, if we did, I bet you anything that we would show ourselves to be wonderfully delusional. So you said in in the Jesuit review last year in May that you have discovered since your diagnosis of cancer and given your expertise on American religion, that America is a, here's your quote, country of individualists, endless triumphalists. And that American Christianity, particularly the prosperity gospel reflects American individualism. And how are you seeing that play out right now in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, well, I hate to agree with myself, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I do think that's true. Um, well, I, I think um, much of the thinness of our of our language um, to explain that the abiding loneliness people are describing, people feel really thrown by how living as individuals that they that they, they think they should have. Um, the emotional, physical, financial, uh, social reserves to do this kind of extended isolation project. And that's because all their supporting stories are supposed to confirm that. And then I think there's been a huge confusion about um, why why loneliness feels so awful, why it's at the root of, um, you know, uh, that social isolation leads to all kinds of other uh, tragic dimensions of, um, of failed health is... We just didn't have enough uh, language for why um, why we were never supposed to do it alone in the first place. We're just we're not, <laughs> and you know, unless you're like a Quaker or lefty in the fun ways. Even the lefties are, are just like wild individualists for the most part. It's a it's a cultural disease, I think, and and, and replicated by all of our ways of interacting. 
all of social media is just, um, is personalities given megaphones. There's, there's so few group projects we get to be a part of where we feel held and understood. And, and if we like lean against each other, we're, we, you know, we think that we're just being codependent. (laughs) So I think there's, I think there's a real disorientation about that right now. So there's a book that I'm sure you're aware of a famous rabbi, Harold Kushner asked, uh, wrote a book when, why do bad things happen to good people or when bad things happen to good people? You've contemplated that question a lot in your work, in your life. Any answer yet? (laughs) (laughs) Right, 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 right. I totally figured out, Jim. I'm so glad you called. I'm here to give you the answer. Um, (laughs) Well, there's lots of um, scriptural attempts to answer it. Uh, There's a lot of railing against God and wondering. Then there's some chippy remarks in there in Proverbs about never have I seen the righteous go hungry, which I would (laughs) love love to know if they thought about revising. in the end, bad things happen to good people because uh, there is no cure to being human. And uh, the world will not mete out uh, its punishments in relationship to either our faithfulness or whether we don't cheat at golf. We just, and if there is math, we don't get to see it. So the problem is, of course, is that we're left with suffering without apparent meaning. And like, that's scary for us because we, we derive a lot of purpose from meaning. Um, it's hard to sit in something we don't deserve or we feel like we don't deserve or even if we do <laughs> and, and, and find, and find a, a way of talking about ourselves lovingly and our God. So I, I've kind of given up on the lessons and I've just decided that like the, the weird gift of life in the ashes is that God shows up. That's just like God's very strange a game is like all the stuff about God being close to the prisoner and the widowed and the orphaned. Like that wasn't cause there was, you know, that like they had the special access. It's, it's because they were living with the artifice of independence. <laughs> so God was there and that's, that's where we need to be too. Hmm. So, uh, you have said that um, that gratitude <laughs> is the <laughs> virtue of attention, even if things don't inherently become better with being grateful. How does finding thankfulness, gratitude help you in the midst of a crisis like this? Yeah. Well, I struggled a lot with gratitude because people were always telling me to be grateful. <laughs> so I was just like, screw you. I'm not grateful anymore. Um, you know, and then there's, <laughs> there's all sorts of John Piper books out there telling me to be grateful for my cancer and not to miss it. Uh, but if we don't find a place for gratitude, the problem is we don't get to figure out our own math about what counts. Like, like when I was really sick, I, there was like absolutely nothing that was going to be very good. You know, I was worried about going bankrupt, uh, with what my health, uh, with what my cancer treatments were costing my family. My family was like busy appraising their homes to figure out if they could pull money. I was not expected to live out the rest of the year and I had a two-year-old. And so there wasn't, it on the surface, there wasn't like a lot to be grateful for, <laughs> but I just, I realized that there was something in counting up all the small things, like the way my kid's hair smells, ugh, and 
and how my dad's tummy feels. He has this nice soft tummy that like you can really just sink into if you're having the absolute worst day. And like today's um, nurses appreciation day and like that I walked into uh, an oncology center that I was absolutely terrified to be in. And I found this like sprightly little nymph called Meg. <laughs> and that Meg was about to make my life a thousand times better. So I, it was all the little things that I, once I realized it was never actually going to like cancel out all the bad stuff, but it could still add up to something really beautiful. Then I started to think like, all right, like that's, that's still really good math. I like, I like that language of what your math is about what counts. What is my math about what counts? And I read about Megan and preparing for, for this and she at one point just said to you, you know, I lost a child. <laughs> and all of a sudden that was, that was a bridge between her life and, and yours. Yeah. I felt like she was saying like, we're the same, you know, and that's the feeling when the bad thing happens to you is you feel like you're different than everyone else and that your aloneness will just kill you. If it's not the disease, it's just sheer loneliness. And like when people just say like, I'm on the same side, I like that it really builds a bridge that makes a lot of suffering feel bearable. You're, you teach at a divinity school. And so liturgy is part of what your <laughs> students look at. We're in Easter isn't a day, it's a season. And we're in the Easter season now. And this will come out still in that season. And um, I was talking to my dear friend, Richard Rohr on Good Friday. And he said, Good Friday is, he gave me this image of this, of the Jesus arm stretched out, nailed to a cross, saying to our world right now, I can't stop your, your, your coronavirus sufferings, but I'm with you in it. I'm with you in them. And then Sunday, I had a very powerful image that Easter Sunday of, of the hands now beckoning us and saying, um, Jesus says, I can make all things new. What have we learned from this that need to be made new? What broken systems and relationships and structures and and the unequal suffering that we're seeing from this pandemic? So now we're in the season, okay, how do we make things new? What needs to be made new? I think the worst part about the White House decision to have Easter um, be the opening of the economy in the country was not just a public health recklessness, it was that. But it's a fundamental misunderstanding of Easter. Easter was never to go back to normal. Easter was always to make things new. So what do we make new now in this coronavirus? We can't control and, and time. And we're either denying or we're controlling or we want to be able to predict and we can't. But we are learning from this some things. And how does that allow us to enter our lives into making those things different and better and new going forward. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, um, the, the role of witness is so important. I think in the, in the, in the contemplation of what Jesus has done for us. And it, it feels important now because I think, you know, we're all, we're all stuck in our perspective and we're, we're so much more separate than we've been before. And, we really need that experience of of trusting each other as witnesses, witnesses to both um, the injustice and the things that require wholeness 
and saying, I believe you and I'm willing to stand alongside you. And also the, the ability to like sort of gather up all the little breadcrumbs of hope so that we can all see it too. Because otherwise the not yetness of the kingdom of God is going to really kick us in the throat at a time like this. So it's hard to even imagine things being new when, you know, when you just lost your mom or you're like, you just, you're so, or you're one of those uh, exposed professions and you have such an acute sense of all that is being lost. So yeah, I think the, the, the cloud of witnesses sounds like a really good idea right now in figuring out how to be Easter people. You know, I have um, that cloud of witnesses in my office here where I'm talking to you is a whole wall of the, what Vincent Harding, who was a disciple of Dr. King, a mentor of mine, talked to me about how they're all faces. They're all the, you know, the Fanny Lou Hamers and Dorothy Day and, and uh, Martin and Malcolm and all Bonhoeffer. And, if you look at them, they all inspire us, but none of them were great stories of success. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That they changed everything <laughs> yeah. about their circumstances. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Faithful is what they <laughs> were, and the text says you, you're talking about that that idea. It's 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 their kind of um, uh, they're invested in us, and it's, they're almost. Uh, Vincent Harding would call them our, they're our cheerleaders up in the stands. We're down in the field in the mud and the dirt and they're, they're wanting us to be faithful and their, their ultimate uh, destinies tie, tied to ours. And they you know, Steve Biko here was, was killed and, and Bonhoeffer and Clarence Jordan and, and now in Desmond Tutu, of course, and so many people. And yet there are cloud of witnesses that they, they're not known for their success finally, but for their, their faithfulness and somehow there's no way there, you know, nothing made them say I shouldn't suffer or this shouldn't be happening or I can fix it or deny it. No, how do I respond to it by being a follower of Jesus is always the hardest, the hardest thing for us in a time like this. Yeah. Yeah. But Jim, I have plans. I've got this whole calendar full of yeah. successes I wanted to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a podcast called Everything Happens. What did you mean by that? What does, what, how does that open all this up for you? I guess I was just, I was thinking of, you know, in my own life, there had been such a big before and after. And after was when I knew like, oh, everything happens. And sometimes there's no great, there's no great lesson. It just happens. And I I found that um, the two communities that I, I, I love to be in connection with most are all those like me who are living in their kind of afterlife, like the, the life after the things they didn't choose. And then um, a lot of the folks that listen to the podcast are people who are really very purpose seeking. They, they picked professions that emotionally tire them out. They're pastors or doctors or nurses or social workers. And they're looking for more of that language of community that and language and community that helps us find a little, a little richer narrative for how to live in that place. So it's, yeah, it's just kind of a gathering place for, um, for those of us who want to know that we're not alone, even when life isn't perfect anymore. Well, that's a great way to finish this conversation. It's like, it's like this time of social distancing where churches are going virtual. And on the one hand, we're physically distanced. On the other hand, I think in some ways we're getting closer 
when I hear of things people are doing around the country, connecting, really connecting, wanting to connect more deeply with each other and with the most vulnerable in particular. And how this time uh, of distancing could actually help us overcome some of the social isolation yeah. and build the community that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hope so. Well, we, we often don't know what the reason is, do we? But we know that finally, in what happens, we find each other and we find God. And maybe that's, uh, that's the lesson this conversation teaches us today. So, Kate, thank you again for joining us. Oh, I was so glad to be here. Thank you. To hear more from Kate, go to katebowler.com, katebowler.com. Follow her on Twitter at Kate C. Bowler, Kate C. Bowler. And check out her latest book, The Preacher's Wife. Oh, we got to talk about that one sometime soon all by itself. The Precarious Power of Evangelical Women Celebrities. Bless you and thank you for the way you're helping to uh, be a good professor by teaching us and uh, may, maybe a bit of a pastor by encouraging us too. So thank oh, you so much. Blessings on your ministry. For news and resources and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit Sojo.net slash coronavirus. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family and enemies even, as Jesus calls us to love them too. And what better way to love someone than to share a conversation like this? We're available on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. After you listen, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. This is Jim Wallace with the Soul of the Nation. God bless you.